I'm a huge fan of clothing rental memberships. I think it's such an amazing way to not only save money, but also have a more sustainable home where you just don't buy quite as many things. And it's also an amazing way to explore new styles without the commitment of needing to purchase everything. I recently discovered Armoire, which is a woman-founded and woman-led brand that also spotlights ton of women-owned designers on their website. All you do is take a five-minute style quiz and then you select items that you love and then styles show up at your door in as little as two days. And then whenever you're ready for new clothes, you just swap them out for new styles. So it's on a membership program tier and you can sort of choose the membership you want. I ordered my first case just yesterday and I already got the shipping confirmation for it. I have pieces on the way from Hatch, a pea in the pod, and so much more. I really went all out with the maternity clothes. I got dresses, jumpsuits, maternity jeans, things that I wouldn't otherwise want to buy because I really will only need them for such a limited time. I'll be sharing some of the styles on my stories in the coming weeks, but if you're interested in giving Armoire a try, they are kindly giving my listeners up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. So just visit armoire.style slash real stuff. That's armoire.style spelled A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash real stuff to get up to 50% off your first month. Go give them a try today. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Real Stuff. I'm Lucy Fink and today's episode is our first guest episode of the show. This is actually the second time I'm recording this intro. I'm having some technical difficulties in my podcast studio. For some reason when I go to record, I keep not having my actual mic turned on. And instead, I'm recording the audio in my webcam, and then I listen back, and I'm just like, this is not good for the audience. You don't deserve this. You deserve better audio. So we're re-recording the intro. I'm so excited to get into this episode. I gave the question of who should be the first guest on this show a lot of thought, because I really wanted a guest that was going to encapsulate the spirit of the show, someone who is going to come on, be raw, be open, be vulnerable, And I could not have made a better choice. Many of you might know Mike Johnson for his brief stint on TV. He was a contestant on season 15 of The Bachelorette. He then went on to be on Bachelor in Paradise. We sort of just dive into some of his TV experience and what it felt like on his rise to fame in the episode, maybe even without mentioning what he's in. So in case you don't know him, Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise. But Mike has such a unique story. He's had a very interesting upbringing. He's had a lot of cool jobs before becoming what he is today. And even today, although he does operate kind of like an influencer, he works in the sex space. He's got a lot of great stories. He was very candid and shared a lot with us on this call. The other thing I want to share is that aside from me and my podcast team, the only person who heard this interview and who listened to this recording before we made it live was my husband, Michael. One night recently, we were cleaning up the kitchen together and I put headphones in his ears and played it for him. And my husband, Michael, did not know who Mike Johnson was. He didn't follow him on social media. He does not watch reality TV, so he never heard of him. And even without knowing him, my husband said that the interview was incredibly enjoyable to listen to. I heard him. He was laughing out loud at multiple moments. He even was tearing up at one point. So the truth is this episode, and I'm hoping almost all of the episodes on this show, you don't need to know who the guest is. You don't need to be super familiar with them or their platform in order to find the conversation intriguing, in order to really get sucked into someone else's story. So I hope you enjoy it. Just a reminder, as you're listening, if you are enjoying this episode, please consider going to the Apple Podcast Store and leaving the show a five-star rating and a written review. It would mean so much to me. Thank you in advance. And with that being said, let's get into episode two, Mike Johnson. Are you nervous for this interview? Zero percent. I used to be a financial advisor. I'm a sexologist now. And mental health is something I talk about every day. First of all, you're my first guest interview, so welcome to the show. And secondly, as I'm asking you these questions, if I ever ask you something that you don't want to talk about online, that's totally fair game, and you can always reject a question. If I ask it, in that case, I might just probe as to why it's off limits. But I have a feeling not much is going to be off limits for you. Not much. It's probably just one thing. And... If there is something that I do feel something about what I normally do, just my personality, I'm probably going to ask you the exact same thing. And if you answer (laughs) it, I'll answer it. But if you don't answer it, I'm not going to answer it. (laughs) Oh, great. All right. So we'll see how this goes. (laughs) So why don't we tell the audience first how we met? 
Well, we were a part of a cohort of nine influencers working with a brand on how influencers and brands can better work together so we can get a better product at the end result when it comes to advertising on influencers' personal pages. And I found Mike incredibly interesting in this group because not only were you the only male, but you have this interesting story. You are a reality TV star turned sexologist. And I want to dive into all of this. So let me... Let me get started in the sex category here with Mike Johnson. I just want to hear present day. What is a sexologist? What do you do? Present day, what is a sexologist? Well, I'm a public facing sexologist. And so I don't see clients one-on-one as much as I have in the past. What it is that I do is I have a focus in a background where I was taught via an authentic Tantra background. Tantra meaning mind, body, spirit, and sex uh, for the betterment of the individual uh, from an integrative aspect. So we integrate like Western science with Taoist sexual practices and nonviolent communication. It's a bunch of stuff put in the blender to better one's sexual and mental well-being. Did you come out of the womb super <laughs> sexualized? Super, super <laughs> sexualized. <laughs> no, uh, well, I mean, it was the womb, so it was a sexual aspect. But that's so bad. Disgusting. Sorry, mom. <laughs> I have, since I can remember, sexual acts have taken place, whether that was taking place against me or whether that was something that happened. I grew up in a family of all women and they told me a lot of stuff with how bad guys were. And so I always took that and ran with it. And then I remember I was 18 years old and I was in community college and my friend said, what do you want to be? And I said, I want to be a doctor of sex one day. And never thought that that would come to fruition, kind of. Are you comfortable opening up at all about, I think it was your words, sexual acts that were committed against you? Um, I think that, yes, I'm comfortable. And I think that it's a, it's helpful to hear because someone in, like, in my position, one, I'm a 6'4", I'm 230-pound a dude. You don't think of that. But I wasn't always a 6'4", 230-pound dude. I was once like, three foot two, you know, <laughs> 50 pounds, you know? And so I was taken advantage of when I was younger. And even when I was in the womb, my mom, my mom was sexually taken advantage of when I was in her womb. And she asked me one time, why did you become a sexologist? And I just, all I said was, well, I think it started when you were taken advantage of and I was inside of you. And she said, say no more. I completely understand. And oftentimes a lot of those wounds are held within the body. I got a book back here uh, that we've all heard of, which is the body Body keeps keeps the score. score. Exactly. And so a lot of the training that I do is somatic healing and the breakthroughs that I've been a part of are just phenomenal. And that's why I do this. That's a beautiful story about your mom. And I'm sure that creates, you know, a really nice connection between the two of you. That's not something I've actually ever heard discussed. The idea of a woman being sexually assaulted while there's a baby in the womb and then that trauma being passed on to the baby in some way. That's a deep connection to your mother right there. No, for sure, for sure, for sure. Hey guys, it's Lucy. I'm popping in here onto the mic after this interview is over and I'm sitting here editing this final episode. And as I listened back to this part, I felt like I had something meaningful to say and to add in here. And you might hear me do this throughout the series, just kind of pop in with some commentary after the fact. As you maybe noticed, Mike just opened up there. He said he was taken advantage of when he was younger, and then almost immediately he went on into the story of his mother being taken advantage of when he was in her womb. When I listened back to this moment, I was struck by how I replied to this comment of his by pretty much only replying to the part he shared about his mother. And I realized that I didn't even really acknowledge or broach the subject further of his having been taken advantage of. And we don't really get back to this at any point in the interview. We don't talk about it further. So this was just something that he sort of put out there. And then that was it. And as the host of this show, I've thought many times going into this podcast how these interviews were going to feel and how much people were going to share with me. And really, I I had no practice going into these conversations. What I wish I had said to Mike directly in that moment that I didn't say was, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that with me. And second of all, 
I am so sorry that you experienced that type of trauma as a young boy. I think if I'm really being honest here, I only have one person in my real life who has come to me and told me that they were sexually taken advantage of in their childhood. And in that moment, being on the receiving end of that information, it can be really challenging to know how to hear that and how to properly respond in the way that you think the person wants you to respond. Obviously, there's no wrong or right answer, but you can feel a little bit closed-chested thinking, how does this person want me to respond? What is the right thing to say? As the host of this show, something I'm working on is getting myself into these uncomfortable places and really learning how to face that discomfort head on and not steer away from topics that I might not know how to reply to immediately. Even if my reply to Mike in the moment had been that I don't even know how to reply or that I don't even know what the right thing is to say, I think even just opening up about my lack of ability to reply is better than not replying. So all this to say, Mike, if you're listening to this recording, I want to thank you so much for coming onto the show in the first place, for being so vulnerable with us, sharing that part of your story. And I really do wish I had responded differently in the moment. And to all future guests who come on the show, a huge thank you in advance for your candor and for allowing us to engage in these important discussions. Okay. That's all I wanted to say. Back to the show. I'm curious what your upbringing was like in terms of it being okay to open up about feelings and emotions or if you were sort of taught to stifle that. I was taught to stifle that. I remember there was a show, America's Most Wanted. I don't know if you remember that show. It was like, I got, I was like maybe six years old, seven, I was seven years old. And I was terrified one night. I'll never forget it. It was raining. It was stormy. My mom was in her bed. My sister was in the bed with her. And I was just in the dark watching this show, America's Most Wanted. And on this show, there was a guy. He had an extra thumb that came from the thumb. It was the weirdest thing ever. And he could count money like this and hold it in his extra thumb. It's really cool, but it was... As a little seven-year-old, I was terrified. I run to my mom, like, can I get a bed? And she said, no. And I'm, obviously, I didn't forget it to this day. And she told me no. She said, you need to learn how to you know, deal with that. In my household, there was no father figure. And so the women had to play the role of a dad and a mom. And so, therefore, they were masculine as well as feminine. And for me, they wanted to raise a, what they thought was the right thing to do. And so... It, it wasn't, you can be feminine. Do you mind if I ask about your dad? Yeah, definitely so. He's in your life, but he wasn't in your house. Yes, he's in my life. He wasn't in my house. My sister and I, I'm looking at it right now. I have her on my desk. We have different fathers. So we lived with my sister's father for some a little bit of time, like three, four years. But my mother and my father never got married. And he was military, so he would go off from time to time. And they lived in different states uh, for a good period of time, but then also lived in the same state for a period of time. So I just never lived with my father. It wasn't one of those terrible stories. Did that inform in any way what you thought your future would look like? Or, you know, maybe in some ways it told you you wanted the opposite, or maybe it was giving you a blueprint? No, definitely. It was absolutely teaching me, teaching me exactly what I wanted, which was to be there in the household. I've had two serious relationships as an adult. And I've said to both of those ladies, you know, God forbid, if we ever have children and we break up, you and I are going to live in the same city. We're going to be really, really close. Do next dude going to have to deal with it because I, I don't play that. <laughs> but I haven't had any children outside of marriage. So we're good. Do you want to have children? Yeah, that's like my number one goal in this entire earth while I'm above ground is to build my future kids a treehouse. Oh, wow. I love that. Like that is by far number one goal. Are you you equipped to do that? Do you have those building skills? Thank you for asking. No one's ever asked me that question. I'm building myself. I may have some friends over, like I may hire some help, but I'm I'm 100% going to do it myself. What I anticipate is that I'm going to, force my children to help me <laughs> and so that we can so they can be mad at me but they can learn so many life lessons and then they're, when, they're, when they're like you know 18 19 20s they can come back and like you know and i have all the memories it's such a 
it's happening. Like it's so ingrained in my brain. I'm w- I'm ready for this treehouse. I'm I already see it being like a TLC show. The tree Mike's treehouse. Why a treehouse? Is this something you always wanted? It's not necessarily something I've always wanted. As terms of myself, I just think that I'm a extremely I'm the dude that I'm so corny. I just want to be a dad so bad. I'm, I'm like a dad joke type of guy. Right? That's me. That's the corny dude that is just going to make a great father who's just as hella corny when he's childless. That's, that's who I am. And so it's just, I, for me, it's always been like such a family legacy. I, I, I mean, they say that a man should do three things, you know, write a book, build a tree house and something else I forget. And I've done, I've done two out of three so far. I got to have a child though to do the third. <laughs> I have never heard these rules from, for manlyhood, but I'm, <laughs> I got to pass that to my husband. Get on the book, get the tools. We have the tree. We just need the, we need the house. So if you were to describe your current mental health, how are you doing? Thank you for that question. I appreciate that. I would say, you know, this is a conversation that I'm going to say something and turn into this conversation that I've yet to have. I was on TV prior and it's pretty difficult to it's almost like a mind fuck when like everyone sees you when you walk down the street and then no one sees you when you walk down the street. It's like going from nothing and you're happy and you're cool. And then getting a taste of what like celebrities, not the bad stuff or the negative things of it. Cause it is definitely has those aspects, but the good stuff, like cutting the front of the line or people giving you their best service ever at a restaurant or just whatever the case. Right. And then you go to people being assholes again, you know, and you really learn a lot about life and human beings and the way that we are and our motives, which is really awesome to look at. And so for me, like my audience is the same as your audience, probably it's like 97% women is my audience. And it's really difficult being a black guy that's like in his mid thirties, who all my audiences are younger white girls. And I'm trying to relate to them. Super difficult. Never thought I would have to do that. So I think my mental health for a while was how do I bring authenticity to my own platform while not sabotaging the beautiful blessing that I've been given? Because you and I got our following in very different ways. You earned every ounce of yours. I don't know why I was chosen to go on a TV show and just got it overnight. And so it's been really difficult in trying to be authentic while still trying to create something that these girls can relate to. And so for me, that was really hard for a while. Like the last 12 months, I just be losing followers left and right and really don't care no more. Now it's more like I am cutting fat off, shall we say. And that's how it feels. And outside of that, I would say my mental health is, I'm trying to be really, really transparent and honest. I would say my mental health is definitely in a good spot. And the reason I would say definitely is because goals suck ass. You got to have systems. And I have systems for my mental health. Those systems are broken into four categories, meditation, movement, connection, and pleasure. Meditation is just simply a way for you to have peace from mind. Then it goes into movement. I do a lot of movement every single morning. Sometimes we you know, scream, yell, just get it out, which is beautiful. It really, really helps. And then pleasure. There's like Sexual pleasures, of course, but then there's emotional pleasures. And so I try to get as many pleasures as I can. And then connection, I say that one for last because it's the absolute biggest one. I'm talking about connection with myself, whether it's in my journal. I'm talking about connection with my girlfriend, actually being intimate with her. Every first of the month, it's like all my tier one friends are male. And for me, it's like, hey, how are you doing? How's your how's your finances? How's your if you have kids, how's your kids? How's your lady doing? And just going down a list of questions until we and just connecting. And so I think that my mental health is in a really good place simply because of the systems that I have in place. Yeah, it sounds like you take good care of yourself. Those four pillars, I guess, are pillars I would say that I prioritize as well. Would you say that in a typical week in the life of Mike Johnson doing your job, that one of the biggest stresses on you and one of the biggest things that weighs on you is maintaining this audience? No, it damn is damn sure not trying to keep someone happy that doesn't like my authenticity. 
what it is, the only thing that I continually think about is how do I convey and communicate exactly what I'm trying to communicate. So for example, I want pretty much every other post to be about sex on my page. And I'm not talking about like, put dick here. I'm talking about, for example, I may say something like 81% of women wish they bought a intimacy wellness device sooner, but more than 50% of those women can orgasm with their device, but can't orgasm with their partner. Let's talk about why. So I want to have elevated conversations about topics that are real, kind of like yourself, but it's also, I'm aware and my audience has told me, it's kind of weird listening to a dude talk about this stuff. And, and so I'm trying to figure that out. That's what I think about. How do I communicate, be authentic and not make someone feel icky? What I can identify in you and your brand that feels similar to me and feels similar to how I operate is listen, I want I want to see my numbers on my platform rising over the years and mostly I want that to happen because I know that's going to lead to more business success on the back end. But I don't want those numbers going up with the wrong people who I'm not feeling good about talking to. That's the truth. I have what I'm hearing is that you don't want an audience, you want a community. Yes. And when you go on TV, you you gain a massive audience. But then when they get to know your personality, they either are with it or they're not with it. And that's not to mean that you're a bad person. They just are with it or not with it. I've lost almost 300,000 followers since being on TV, which is absurd, right? One, every single time I post my girlfriend, I lose followers. I've been in prior situations and in terms of dating and lost followers. And so it's more about building that community. I do want my followership to go up, but at the same time, it's almost for me, it's almost like if I am, if I haven't worked out in four years, I actually want to cut the fat while building muscle. And then once the fat is cut, continue to build muscle. And I think in a lot of ways, the losing of followers, even though it's hard, it's a good thing. Yes. I have to ask, what does that conversation look like between you and your girlfriend? If any, maybe she doesn't give a shit. What is it like for her yeah. that that so, her partner can't post her because it will affect his business? Well, I, I definitely post her a hundred percent. I mean, I, I'm not the type of dude that posts my girl every single day, but I'm definitely the type of dude that uh, I'm all about privacy, not secrecy. So my relationship is private, but it's not secret. Um, everyone that looks at my page knows that I have a girlfriend, knows that my girlfriend in my eyes is a 10 in every single way. It's funny, on, honestly, because we watch the numbers every single time, whether it's in stories or grid post, I'm going to lose at least a thousand followers within the next four hours, every single time. And at first it was like, maybe it's because you have a pretty much all white audience and I am an African woman, a dark skinned African woman. And then it, then it's gone to, well, maybe it's just the fact that you don't do thirst traps no more because you're like trying to be a good guy. Right. And so that's another aspect of it. Um, I don't think she cares. And the, and the reason I say that is because I think that she just, you love the fact that your person chooses you over X. And in this case, X would be audience members. I'm honestly happy that she isn't, I don't know. I'm happy that it's not a point of contention in your relationship because I can see no. for someone who's like, this is my business. I need to post, I need to keep my followers, but I'm trying to not hide you away and make it look like I'm single just so that I get followers because that can feel inauthentic and icky. For sure, for sure, for sure. What brings me happiness is not the 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 number that I see when I go to IG. What brings me happiness is the feeling that I get when my girlfriend alarm goes off for her to go to the gym and she skips the gym because she just doesn't want to leave the bed. What is your earliest experience sexually? <laughs> Um, my early experience actually wasn't taken advantage of, but it was more so my big cousin. <laughs> I've never said this publicly. <laughs> so I was five, I think, and my big cousin was like 14. And I remember <laughs> he has a bunch of brothers and I was just one of the cousins. And he was doing his thing with his girlfriend at the time. And all of us little kids were disgusting and we wanted to catch him in the act or whatever. And so we did and they get done and he comes outside and he slaps us all with his hand. And we're like all disgusted by it. 
he's like, yeah, that's what a grown man smells like. And I was like, dude, this is ridiculous. And <laughs> I just, it was just disgusting. It's derogatory. It's something I shouldn't say, but it was a true moment as a child. And that was my earliest memory of anything sexual. And what about, what about your first experience, you know, physically with anything sexual? I was very young as well. And (laughs) I'll say this. There's, I believe in mutual pleasure. I'll start with that. And I was doing something that I thought was mutually pleasurable. And there's a term for it, right? Eat someone out. And so as a, as a little dumbass kid, I wasn't a child. I was a young teenager. I performed cunnilingus, what I thought was cunnilingus. And I went to school. I told my friends and they were laughing at me (laughs) because I thought I was like actually eating. And the girl had screamed because. So are are you telling me teeth were involved? What are you telling me? What were you doing with that (laughs) mouth? (laughs) What were you doing with that mouth? Teeth were involved. Teeth were involved. Teeth were involved. Oh, poor girl. Terrible. Poor girl. She's better now with teeth were involved at that time. And I got pretty big teeth too. Okay. I wanted, I just want to go to that topic for a second. Maybe you could explain this to me as a man. I don't (laughs) foresee having 50 50 men and women on this podcast because my audience is primarily women. So maybe this is my chance to ask Do men like eating women out? Do heterosexual men like eating women out? Um, I think heterosexual men like eating women out more than homosexual men. Like <laughs> I would agree with that statement. <laughs> uh, that's, just a, that's the first time I've been able to make a joke like that. And it was like actually not cancelable. No, wow. it's not cancelled. You're you're good. That was not a cancelable I agree joke. with your joke. But, <laughs> but from all the men that I know, yes. Now, I would say this, since like this is mostly the ladies listening and mostly it, like you mentioned, uh, you'll probably have more women on. I have heard guys making stupid jokes like, well, I got mine. I don't care if she don't get hers. Or one of my friends, I'm not going to say his name. <laughs> He's a known person. He, Me and him had a very candid conversation, and he had never done that, and he felt that he never should. I love to say that I'm one of the people that basically changed his complete mindset on that. It's 2024 now. Like, come on. Like, it's mutual pleasure. Like, you can't just... Men often think that their crescendo moment is their what's between their legs, when it's really not. Like, the most important six inches is between our heads. And, like, use your creativity and do other things. I would agree with that. I think that so much of sex is mental and emotional. And, I mean, it's proven by the fact that you can orgasm without touching yourself, whether you're asleep or awake. So obviously our brains are just so powerful, but so many people think of it as just this purely physical act. And it's, no. I think almost any woman, maybe I'm not speaking for everyone, but almost any woman would agree that part of the reason that sex is maybe different to us than men is just because of how mental it needs to be in order to be good. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've, I'm under the impression that with most men, it's like a touch can arouse you. And it doesn't matter who's touching you. It doesn't matter if it's your girlfriend or a stranger in the bar or the couch corner. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, the couch ain't doing nothing for me personally. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sexually attracted to the couch. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it can be almost anything, even inanimate objects. And for women, yeah. it's like... No, not that we have to be in love, but there has to be some emotional wheel spinning in order to get anywhere and have any sort of task complete. Yeah. Um, A lot of, I've heard that from a lot of women, but then the one thing I always say back is, where's your B.O.B.? Where's your Bob at? Your battery operated boyfriend, right? And then it comes to like, oh, well, you're right. This is an inanimate object. And it does get me to a place that Normally, a guy can't get. And so, therefore, I say that for both parties or for all genders, there are things outside of humans that could make this happen, whether it be a sofa or just another human being. Do men need any sort of emotional connection to get them there? It depends. It depends on if we are in a a committed relationship with the person. It depends on if we're single. I may not be able to get erect, just like 
a woman may not be able to get lubricated because there's something else going on and it needs to come to surface. But oftentimes it's way easier for a woman to suppress versus a guy because a guy, you're physically going to see if it works or not, you know? Yeah. And you can't fake it. Yeah. You, it, it, it's there or not. <laughs> yeah. And listen, I'm not a faker. I, I've never, <laughs> I've never faked. I've really never faked was, because I just, I don't think I could. I don't think I'd be good at it. I don't think it'd be convincing. Shout out to your husband. That was my, I have a newsletter. Uh, in last week's edition, we literally talked about faking and for all men and women both, please stop faking. I'm really curious what percentage of people do that regularly because that seems like a, a lot of work. It's a performative act. What are you doing an Academy Award Meg Ryan moment every week? I think it says something like, don't quote me. This is 100% correct, but it's around this number. More than 80% of women have faked it. I would, I would believe that. Like 56% of guys have faked it as well. Uh, but it's going down here. Like the number is decreasing of people faking it. So that's a good thing. On the topic of orgasms, because I think that's everyone's ultimate goal when they're having sex. What is your goal as a sexologist when you're talking in public and trying to help people? Is your goal to have to teach people how to have the best sex of their life? Is your goal to teach people how to feel connected through touch? What do you say is your mission statement? I'm a sexologist for ultra high net worth men who want to be sexually intuitive within their partner relationships. That's my mission statement. The goal is not to have an orgasm because it's all about peaks and valleys and flows. And so the goal that I would tell people is just to learn what, learn to relax with sensation, learn to relax, period. Learn to be comfortable with lights on, with the lights off. Learn to listen to your body. Your body oftentimes is trying to tell you something. The first time I told my girlfriend, we were actually performing a sexual act. And I'll be honest, I wasn't able to be in my body. I was too much in my head. And it was because I simply just, I had never told her I loved her. And I really, really felt the need to tell her I love her. And I did. And I stopped trying to perform. And I was able to just relax and be present in my body and in my mind and just tell her how I felt. And so my ultimate goal when I'm talking to people publicly or even privately is just to learn how to speak body language. The best sex that we can all have is connected sex. And how do you recommend people in the bedroom, in the moment, get to that point? Is it about doing breath work and you know thinking in your head, I'm here, yeah. I'm present, I'm in my body, <laughs> I feel the sheets? Or is it something you do outside of the bedroom that then translates in? Well, I mean, you're a woman, I'm sure and you're a mother and a, and a wife and a businesswoman. There's a lot that's going on up here. And I'm not trying to diagnose anything right now, but we got to be chill. We have to be, we do have to be at a, maybe it is breath work. I love to have sacred space. Sacred space is simply the five senses, right? What am I looking at? What am I smelling? What am I hearing? And so oftentimes what I teach is, how to be intimate. And so that may be a position that we call yab yum. You, the, the, the person who is weighs a little bit less, they sit on top of the other person, like looking at each other, eye gazing, looking, if, if it's difficult, looking to the left eye, it's breathing in unison together, right? It's having a clear space. It's, it's giving each other affirmations, how you feel about each other. It's talking. Sometimes it's holding. It's the people that want to have the orgasm so bad. Believe me, I do too. I've had it. I love it. I, I want it all the time as well. But to get the more and more and more orgasms, it's all about being in tune with the present moment. The present, it's called the present for a reason because it's a gift. I'm curious about your experience in the tantric sex space as not only a man, but a black man. How oh, does that that's feel? That's a great question. It, in one half sucks because I'm normally the only guy in a lot of spaces. Um, whether it be like our influencer course that we were a part of, uh, me growing up with all women, I actually learned authentic Tantra in a, a matriarchal, it was matri it's a matriarchal society. It's, uh, Vajrayana. That's specifically what it is. It was created in the Northern Indus Valley and women were and are revered in that space. And so for me, I honestly think I'd have a leg up on other guys. That's how I really feel. And the reason I say that is because I'm able to tap into what quote unquote, we would call our femininity. I look at femininity as the aspect of awareness and the aspect to be creative. I look at masculinity with, as the aspect of skillful means to, to the doing. And I think that you and I both have 
femininity and masculinity within us. I think it's just about tapping into both and having a well balance of both. And so for me, as a black man, as a bigger black man, I think that in growing up in the environment that I grew up in and being a war veteran and being shot at and all these different things, my training has helped me to tap into a different space. So therefore the things that bother me, I'm able to convey. I'm able to convey with I statements. I feel this way. I would like this versus being extremely logical and missing the entire point or not speaking the same language as my partner. It's funny because as pretty much everyone knows, as a a man's, our second most pleasurable spot is in our anus. And as a black man, it's like, quote, unquote, against the culture to say something like that. And I haven't done it because of my culture, because of my conditionings. Uh, I'm just like, nah, bro, I can't do that. But also as a sexologist, I'm like, that's not gay. But the culture as a black man, and then just me being wanting to be a masculine man, I'm like, nah, I can't do that. Can't do it. Won't do it. It's not happening. Are we talking about a finger going into your anus? Yes. You're saying your reason for not having tried that, even though you know anatomically that it would feel good, is more culturally. And for sure, your position as a man, and as you said, a black man, because I think that society, even taking your race out of it, society has this whole masculine, feminine dynamic to it. And I do find it interesting that on the masculine side, men are expected to have that masculine energy as they navigate through society and in all sexual situations. So how does that play into when you're talking to other men? You said you're a sexologist for high net worth men. How do you encourage them to tap into femininity? Because that's important. By listening to them and going back to just getting to the basics, getting to the basics of things, making them talk in a non-violent communicative way. Like, what are your needs? What are your wants? You know, what are your desires and what are your requests that you have? And then just simply breaking it down. I am terrified. So if I were to allow a woman to do that to me and then we break up and then she makes fun of me by saying, you just wanted me to stick a finger in your ass. <laughs> that would crush me, crush my little heart as a man. Like I would just be like, oh, it's it's not just I'm trying to be big and bad and, and you know, a hard ass. It's like, do I trust this woman? Kanye West was dating a woman named Amber Rose and she made fun of him. She said, Kanye likes fingers in his ass. Right. That's such a like a direct. She purposely is trying to dig at him. Nobody wants to hear that. Do you plan on getting married one day? Absolutely. Maybe if you are engaged to someone or married to someone, you might lose <laughs> that fear. You might just feel like it's a little more permanent and like they're not going to tweet about you if you break up. I, I do want to go back to that story you just told about your rise to fame with The Bachelorette, which I got to be honest, I didn't watch. I <laughs> I used to no watch. Worries. I used to watch. I stopped. I I think. What what year were you on? Uh, season fifteen, Hannah Brown. What actual year was that? Um, twenty nineteen. All right. I was getting married. I, it was a busy year, but my whole family watched. And <laughs> I have to believe you're right. There's such a difference between reality TV growth and a content creator who's doing the work that I know you now are in the world of. And it's different. You know, obviously there's the instant rise of followers. Like, do you remember, was it the moment that the trailer launched for the season and your name came out on the website that you started getting social media followers? Do you remember what that was like? It was even before that, honestly, because like those Bachelor fans, I love them. Lord Jesus, they are, they're Bachelor fans. <laughs> they're fans. It was like week four and we don't have, we didn't have our phones because you can't have your phone while you're on the show. And we had a rugby match and it was a thousand people in the stands and they were screaming like my name and like three other guys' name. And I was like, how the hell do you know who I am? And so it started growing even before I got off the show. So did you have any feelings for her before you showed up on site or you were all 100% thinking, I'm going to let it materialize. We'll see how I feel when I meet her. Um, I had one thought, uh, which was, man... And I'm being so honest with you. I was like, man, this white girl don't like black guys. <laughs> <laughs> that was my only thought. I was like, man, I have no chance. Like, you know, some people like what they like, and there's nothing wrong with that. And How like, many man. other black contestants were there? Um, 
I think there was a total of five of us to include myself. Did you feel in any way like you were cast as a token black person just to have racial diversity on the show? Honestly, no. I think that, I mean, I know because I'm a part of that world and I know numbers, the numbers don't lie. You got to follow the statistics and the data. I do know that the show, and I'm talking about everything I'm about to say is obviously generalities in 80-20. There's always a person that is against, uh, that is not what I am saying, right? Uh, But I do know for a fact, anyone can argue me. I mean, there's a beautiful lady. She runs a, a Instagram called Bachelor Data, I believe. Shout out to her. And just being post-show, you can learn a lot about how this stuff works. And the audience definitely leans one race over another race. I'm not even mad for that. Um, it's like if you were to go on BET, they don't lean one race versus another race. That's true. Be <laughs> and so, no, I honestly didn't feel that it, I was just you know there for uh, to be tokenized. Were you opening yourself up to potentially fall in love with her? Yeah, she was a cutie. I mean, like, <laughs> like I'm just super transparent, right? So, get out. Uh, I, I see her. I'm like, hi, she, you know, she a cutie. That's what's up. This is me individually. First comes sexual attraction, and then comes, you know, personality because that personality keeps attraction. Is you know, you you got me attracted to you now. Can you keep me? Which is the personality aspect, and she definitely had me off of her attraction, and then it went to let's see how we vibe and. For us, it was definitely a both of us saw that it wasn't for neither one of us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Money, money, money. Let's talk. Let's talk. First, what kind of what kind of income does someone in the military get? Man, I was getting shit paid. I think I, <laughs> I think at the time I was going to pay. I, I I did the math. I think it was eight dollars an hour. Eight dollars an hour to be. What were you I doing? Was, what What was your role? So I was a cybersecurity. I was in the Air Force. Uh, cybersecurity, basically, in the simplest way, we stop people from hacking into the American government. So you were defending <laughs> America's cybersecurity and making $8 an hour. <laughs> what the fuck? I know. It's so terrible, right? Like It's ridiculous. I think I went through three different ranks while in the service, and I was enlisted. Like My sister, she became an officer, and she was making... If you're an officer, you make automatically double. Officers can make good money in, in the service. They don't make enough money in comparison to the skills that they do and the work that they put in, but they still make decent money, shall I say. No one in the military, unless you're like a general, is making ridiculous money. When I actually got out of the military, I made more than the highest ranking enlisted person off back, like literally. Where, what type of and role did you have right off, right out of the military? When I extremely got out of the military, my role was the exact same, but just in the civilian sector. And what was your pay there? I think I was 25 making 80K. 25 making 80K. That's good. Yeah, was decent. When you were making $8 an hour defending America from hackers, <laughs> did the military support your lifestyle? How did you support yourself? 100%. I didn't pay rent. I didn't pay for food, electricity. I, the, the only thing I paid for was my car and the things that are associated with a car cell phone things associated with a cell phone and entertainment or food that was under entertainment. But everything that was like for livelihood, I didn't pay for. So you get out, yeah. you have a, you know, close to a six figure salary and that's your first role out of the military. Then you apply for the bachelorette. No, I actually became a financial advisor. Okay. So we skipped a whole part. So now you're an FA. What are you bringing in in that role? Uh, first year I made 125 and it went on, it only went up from there. The month before going to the bachelor, I made 40 K. And so, yeah, it was, it was good. It was good pay. Then you go on the bachelorette. Are you paid for that? Hell no. <laughs> Not at all. Unless you're the lead. If you're the lead, you get, I think a hundred, a hundred to 150,000. 
So you don't get anything then, for being on TV and putting your heart on the line? You get to tell your mom, look, I was on that square thing up there. Oh. <laughs> the TV. How far did you make it in The Bachelorette? Uh, I think week seven, I want to say. And yeah, so that's seven. that's seven weeks, if not more, because of production of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And so you just had to take time off from work to do that. Yes. But I actually... I mean, I, I never went back to a job. So, I mean, for me, I had money saved. You know, I was able to take care of bills, uh, whether I worked or didn't at the time. And yeah, so you, yeah, those two months, you're just net negative in terms of pay. Can you take me back to your upbringing? And I'm curious what rhetoric and conversations happened in your household around money. What, like, what were you taught oh, about for money? Sure, for sure. For sure. Well, they say there's three types of people, poor people, rich people, wealthy people. Poor people teach their kids how to uh, consume and buy. Rich people teach their kids how to invest. And wealthy people teach their kids how to own. And so I was definitely not having a conversation around ownership. Wasn't even having a conversation around investing. I do remember this. My mom at 13 years old, she made me get a bank account. She said, if you ever go to jail, I'm never going to bail you out with money that you don't already have in here. <laughs> and so I'll never forget that. I was like, wow, okay. It was very much get a job mindset. Like when I have children that will, from birth, that's never going to be the conversation. And that's not to say to be offensive at all. It's just to say what I said before. There's poor conversations, rich conversations, and wealthy conversations. That's pretty much a fact. And so therefore... For me and having children, it's only going to be wealthy conversations and rich conversations. How would you describe what your socioeconomic status was when you were growing up? My mom made $31,000 a year raising my sister and I. So I would say it was on the, the, the bottom tier. <laughs> for sure. For sure. The bottom tier. Free lunch at school. You know, that I was that kid. You know, you get uh, Goodwill, uh, Salvation Army. You know, you got to wear underwear that someone else wore before. Some nights there's for dinner as a growing boy, you know, my sister and I would split a frozen pizza, the 99 cent pieces that are smaller than my hand. And if you're still hungry, you got to eat toilet tissue. So I would say that was it growing up when it was cold, like it is right now. And the heater doesn't work. You got to go to the stove, turn the heat on the stove, open it up. And it's all y'all sit around the stove. Did you feel growing up? Like, were you exposed to people who had more and, were you feeling like I'm poor or did you feel, did you feel safe and secure? Um, I, I want to answer in a few different ways. That's a beautiful question. Thank you for asking. I remember one of my best friends at the time, he lived in a two parent household. He's a black kid and he had a two story house. I thought this was the richest dude in the world. I was like, bro, how you got two parents and you got a two story? Like what is going on? I was so flabbergasted. Like for real, I'll, I'll never forget how I felt in that moment. I had never seen someone and it was a basic ass two story house, to remind <laughs> you. But as a kid, I was like, whoa, this is everything. Yeah. Right? Uh, no offense to his parents, you know, uh, <laughs> I know his parents. So they were probably doing what I do now, which is live way below your means. But I never felt poor. I, for some, my girlfriend, and I just had this conversation. We just came from a road trip during this past three day weekend. And we were talking about how growing up poor almost can be a blessing in disguise because sometimes the very, very rich, I'm not talking about regular rich. I'm talking about the very rich. Sometimes they feel that they have all the things one would want, but they don't have love. And then sometimes the most poor people, they ain't got shit. And so all they got is each other to entertain and it's full of love. And so I didn't feel, I remember my sister and I, we couldn't celebrate Halloween. My mom didn't want us to, but like she had went to like the store bought us like some candy that you, you know, scoop into the bag. And we just threw candy at each other all day, like in an empty ass house, right? There was nothing <laughs> there. And it was like one of my favorite memories as a kid. You know, it's, I think the beauty of being a child is that you're ignorant to the fact that you don't know what is without. All you know is what we should know as adults, which is what is the most important things, you know, and love is one of the most important things. And we had that in our household. So I never felt poor. I would say that I was truly wealthy in that regard. I was just going to say there's so many different types of wealth, and I think a really underrated form of wealth is emotional wealth. For and sure, it's just the sure. support you get from the people around you. And there are plenty of people who come from a lot of monetary wealth 
and there's no emotional wealth. And I think that leaks out in the future in so many different ways. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, monetary wealth is something that I'm not saying it's easy to build, but you can build. Whereas building emotional wealth from an empty well is, I feel like that's a lot mm -hmm. more difficult. Mm -hmm. For sure. I love the way you said that. I heard you say that you currently live well below your means. Can you explain what you mean by that? My girlfriend, we went on this road trip. She spent $175 on clothing. I spent no money. And I told her, I said, sometimes I feel, I mean, I spend money for sure, like in my hotel, the dinners, but like in terms of just like buying BS stuff, mm -hmm. I didn't do. And I told her, I said, man, I feel so poor. And she was like, well, I said, cause you could buy everything you want and I can't. And then I was like, hold up. I just spent $4,500 the day before for my business that I was growing. And so that's what I mean. My money is allocated almost 90% for investing and 10% for bills and leisure. 90% of your I mean, current income is going to investments. Is that what you said? Uh, I did say that. I would say to be exact, it's more about 80, 85%. That's aggressive investing. I like it. What are you investing in? Uh, it was paper assets. Um, now we are, you know, we just did our first acquisition of a yoga studio. And now I'm working on a premium artisan gold milk soap that we're trying to create. And so a lot of my dollars go into trial and error because I've never succeeded as being an entrepreneur. Uh, and I, I say that proudly because although it sucks, I've succeeded in almost everything else in life except for this. And that just means that I need to put more effort here. And that's why I invest so much into that space because it might be, I might spend a thousand bucks on training, a training course. I already spent $2,000 for a videographer in the Philippines, right? To go fly to a, a specific city that we're, we're, we're filming for. And so I just know that for me, all of my, my ad dollars go to 100% back into investing for something else. Like it's not even, it's a hundred percent of it goes back. Uh, if I do something as a sexologist, that pretty much goes back into everything. All my money goes into investing for the most part. And so for me, it's just, I've taken care of my nut. Like I say, that's just my bills. So my nut is taken care of. And as long as that's taken care of, let's say plus $300 for fun, what else do I need the other money for? So I have some nitty gritty cost questions. My first question is, did you go to college before going to the military? No. Okay. I went to a community college, but yeah, dropped out. I was going to ask if you had any student loan debt before you yeah. left college. No, I, uh, per, this is personal. So all the listeners, I swear am I coming at you? For me, it's always been debt stands for doing everything backwards twice. Unless it's a form of an investment. I think that college is an investment. I think that a home is an investment. I think that a vehicle is an investment. If you're going into debt to buy clothes or a cell phone, come talk to your boy, you know, <laughs> and I'll, you know, we'll have a, a hard conversation. And so for me, I never wanted to further my education and further the debt that I have to pay back. And so I chose to join the military. I have to agree with you on the cell phone or the article of clothing. I find it harder, the conversation about college because of the way our society is set up to almost force people into needing an education to get so many types of jobs. It's kind of crazy. I think most, most being like over 80% of people don't need college. And what I mean by that is if you're not a doctor of some sort, if you're not a lawyer of some sort, if you don't have a very specialized skill, like if you're a podcaster, no offense, to podcasters, why you need to necessarily have a, a four-year degree in chemistry. Now, of course, with that being said, most of us don't know what the hell we want to do at 18 years old. But I don't think that what you should do is get approved for $100,000 to go into debt either. I think that being more creative is what we should do as parents talking to our children. If you're going to take $100,000 out, I've heard this before, I think from Alex Ramosi. If you're taking hundred k out for college, let's just say, what if that 100K was to build a business and you had someone who was a mentor who held the money and only gave it to you for approved things, right? Basically, what I'm saying is that we could be creative and do other things with that. Or my mom has always said she believes that every human being needs a trade that you can fall back on. I was a wealth management advisor. I saw how much people were paying 
in their student loan debts. It's absurd. I feel bad for them. I do. And you're talking to a Johns Hopkins neuroscience major who's hosting a podcast. So <laughs> here we are. Those individuals like yourself, they're paying four digits a month in student loans. And it, it hurt me. I was like, oh, I feel so bad for you. Yeah. And I, I was a incredibly fortunate. I had an incredibly privileged upbringing and did not incur student loans. My parents were able to send three children through college. So that's not lost on me that it's kind of crazy. I actually just did another episode that's going to come out where I talk a little bit about finances and I open up about that. And I'm hoping some other people from my town are listening because I'm curious if they had a similar experience, but being from this incredibly wealthy suburb, it didn't even cross my mind that people weren't able to pay for college. And when I got to college, even in college, I I think my friend group came from similar backgrounds to me. And oh, for sure. honestly, there were maybe some of them who had student loan debt, but it was not talked about. And I didn't learn about that until I worked at Refinery29 and almost everyone I worked with in the office had student loan debt. And I was then the anomaly. And it's just kind of crazy how your background just totally informs your perception. And then the world is totally different from what you think it is. For sure. It's like the people that grew up um, wealthy may be ignorant to some things. And the people that grew up poor may have a victim mindset to some things. And so like it's both sides is not perfect, right? It's like they may have an advantage in one regard, but then these people may have advantage in another regard. So now in your position, you're kind of half... I guess you are a sexologist where I assume that means you make money doing that in some way, but you also are an influencer because you were on that panel with me and I know you do brand partnerships. So what are your various yeah. income streams right now? My book, I still get paid from that. Uh, I get paid from the, the VA. Um, I get paid from influencing deals. I get paid dividends from my paper assets. And then I get paid from the acquisition we made. What was the second thing you said? VA? Yes, Veteran Affairs. Oh, you get you have a, a, a monthly stipend, stipend from that? Yes. The book. What kind of a what what kind of advance did you get for that book? Um, so for my book, I want I, I like these questions. I actually welcome this type of stuff. Oh good, I'm glad. My, because I don't no, know my, I've never asked no, someone <laughs> how much did you make from your advance. So the, that was my first time asking it. I'm glad it was welcome. No, it's definitely welcome. For my book, I actually, and this is a thing about me, I chose to self-publish. And the reason I chose to self-publish was because I said, I want, I don't really care about New York Times bestseller because I wanted the money, to be honest, <laughs> uh, versus getting a publisher, then you, you have a, a higher likelihood of becoming a New York Times bestseller because if, you know, those that have done their studies on it, it's almost impossible to become a New York Times bestseller as an independent. But I chose the money. I chose the independent route. So therefore, there was no advance. I actually put up all the money. This is why I got kind of annoyed when followers would be like, everybody does a book deal. They just want to get a paycheck. I'm like, no. I'm I paid for this. Yeah, I paid for this. Like, what are you talking about? But you can't say that because then you're looked at like a spoiled brat. But I say it now. How much did you pay to write your book? I mean, from printing the book to getting the book shipped here to paying for my editors. I think it was about... 11,000 altogether. I want to be extremely clear. My book don't really make no money at all. I still get paid every single month. And I, well, it was published in October of 2020. And it's a blessing to still get royalties from that today. But where I made the most money was that what a book allowed me to do was up my pedigree, if we shall. And so therefore, by I'm on your podcast, you could say best-selling author, right? That little sentence allows me to get way more and charge way more for a speaking engagement. So where I might get 15 K for a speaking engagement, that's where the real money comes from for my book. Yeah. That's, that's what I've heard from a lot of authors is that it's not, it's not really about the sales of the book. Not at all. If you're a wannabe author, I'm telling you now as your friend, you ain't making no money unless you are a JK Rowling. I went through, it's a story for another day, but I did go through the process of writing a book proposal and trying to get a publisher and trying to get a deal in an advance and all that. And I will tell the story another day. It fell flat. It. I had a couple good meetings with publishers. And then at the day of the auction, when we were bidding the rights, both publishing houses pulled out of the auction and it just 
kind of dissipated and it was, it was very sad at the time, but you know what? I started a podcast instead and (laughs) decided this is a better medium for me. So I'm not too sad about it, but one day I think a book might be on my horizon. And I have heard from a lot of people that it's don't expect it to be a moneymaker is what they've said. No, I agree. I think honestly, a podcast allows you to build your network even more so. And so I think that that's a win. I agree with that. So, okay. Book aside, that's not your biggest source of income. What is your biggest source of income? Is it influencing? That's the, when back in the day, I remember I got six figures for seven tweets. Six figures for seven tweets. I was like, what? What kind of a brand? Like a, a, like a consumer product brand? It was uh, a telecommunications brand. Huh. Yeah, telecommunications brand. They, yeah, six figures for seven tweets. I, and How I many that, Twitter oh followers did you have at that time? Uh, I think like 140, maybe 140K. As someone who does not use Twitter as one of my platforms, you're making me reconsider. Should I get to Twitter? <laughs> no, that was like a one-off. That was just like the most, more than six figures for seven tweets. I was like, and there was no... um I didn't pay like a, a, a agent for that, like an agency fee. That was 100%. I negotiated everything, my most I've ever made. And I was flabbergasted at the absurdity for them to give me that much money. Did you have any <laughs> sort that. of, not that you should have, because good for you, take that money. Did you feel any sense of imposter syndrome as you were writing those tweets? Zero <laughs> percent. I get imposter syndrome for saying I'm a sexologist. You do? Board certified sexologist. Yeah, I get imposter syndrome from that. I get imposter syndrome from saying entrepreneur. I hate saying that I'm my girlfriend. I talked about it yesterday. I do not like saying that whatsoever. I say that I have projects that I work on. And the reason I say that because they aren't successful yet. And so I get imposter syndrome from stuff like that. I get zero imposter syndrome from taking money to bring awareness to X company. I love that. I mean, you have the you have the following that's valuable. People are value. It's like paying for a billboard where you know it's going to exactly. get a hundred thousand viewers. Exactly. I, I don't feel bad about at that at all. I really don't. How do you make money as a sexologist? Um, speaking engagements, definitely still. Um, I'm doing one. Is that very later. lucrative? Are you doing things like fifteen thousand dollars for one speech? I would say seven k. Seven k. Seven to fifteen. Seven to fifteen. Yeah, I have a friend who is a motivational speaker. That is her full gig, and she has. I think her agent. My understanding is that her speaking agent is the same agent that reps Brene Brown. So she's really in the right hands, and she does only speaking engagements as income, and she's making like twenty, thirty k for an hour talk. Sometimes virtual. Yeah, it's virtually is what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, seven to fifteen for me. I think that's what more people should do. I think that if I were to give advice when it comes to money, I think that if you're, especially if you're an influencer already, I think that you niche down and then, so for me, niche is sex and then niche, two niches further publicly. I love talking about how we weave and integrate sexual well-being for a better mental well-being. That's kind of the sub niche and you charge people to hear you speak. And then you get more credentialing. It's just like being a wealth management advisor. You know, you get your series seven and you get your CFP certified financial planner. And then you niche down into like retirement or you niche down to doctors or small business owners and taxation. And so that's a beautiful moneymaker. It's an hour and you make like minimum 2,500 bucks. You can do three of those a day. (laughs) So I see we just circled back to sex. Seems like we've closed our conversation loop here. Before we get off, I feel like I just drilled you. So do you have any questions for me? <laughs> no, you're good. You're, you're great. You, I do want to know, um, what have you learned growing up in an affluent household? How do you view money? How do you view um, being a wife and a mother in terms of gender roles and relationships? I guess... In both of our families, we, my husband and I both came from families where our dads worked and our moms were stay at home moms. And it just never crossed my mind that I would be a stay at home mom because I, I guess my vision of it was that the world is different now and women easily go off to college or go into career paths that they couldn't, that they weren't accepted in years prior. 
I sort of always knew from a young age that I wanted to have a job and have a career. Only more recently, becoming a mom, have have those dynamics sort of come back into play where my husband and I both work and there are so many interesting things that happen throughout the day where, for example, you know, we we pay for a full-time nanny. Our son actually does go to a preschool, but we also pay for a full-time nanny for the hours that he's not in school. If she calls out sick or if something happens and she can't make it, it's kind of this unspoken agreement between my husband and I that I'm going to take over. Listen, if I had an important podcast recording or if I had a huge meeting I was going to, he would take over. But I genuinely can't tell if it's because I'm the mom or if it's because I work for myself and have a more flexible schedule. And I always try to unpack that. And I don't know what the answer is. I think that's fair. I, I really, really do. I think that for my, for me and my girlfriend, if the fact that I work from home and have more flexibility, as you're saying as well, I kind of would take up if that ever was needed because I have more flexibility. Uh, I think that was a good answer. I think it makes it harder if money is not freely there. It makes it much harder to like have a full-time nanny and things of that nature. And so I love asking that question to everybody because everyone is different. Can you tell my audience where they can find you, what to be looking out for? What can we expect from Mike Johnson? Um, what you can expect from me this year on social is a lot more content around sexual well-being and intimacy. And in a non-icky way, you can find me at Mike underscore Johnson or at feelingsing.com. Amazing. I'll be following... I'll be consuming. I'll be sharing your post with my husband. Yeah, tell your husband he needs to do this. <laughs> Michael, get in this position. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Michael. I never met a Mike I don't like. So there you go. I had so much fun talking to you. See you in the treehouse. That's a great sign off. That's a good sign off. We'll see you in the treehouse. Yeah. It better be good. Get yes. on that. Get on that tool belt. <laughs> see you in the treehouse. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to the real stuff. I'm Lucy Fink. Don't forget to follow the show on social media at The Real Stuff Pod. And if you're liking these episodes, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a written review. It helps the show so much. And if you're feeling called to come on the show, visit lucyfink.com slash apply and tell us your story. We'll see you next week for another intimate conversation on The Real Stuff. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.